0: Hi, this is Adam Griffiths, uh, and welcome to this edition of Paper Cuts. This
1: is Christopher Cardambikas, and you're listening to Paper Cuts. I am right now sitting in the studio and home of Adam Griffiths, DC-based artist and cartoonist. Um he's been working on several comics projects recently and also had a solo show at the Arlington Art Center. Um so Adam, thanks for inviting me in. Thanks for having me here.
0: Thank you. Welcome.
1: So how about we set the stage a little bit. We're sitting in your studio. Um there's lots of books and tools and equipment around. What's uh where are we? What, what are we doing here? <laughs> what do you do in here? <laughs>
0: Uh, to put it bluntly, I do everything every day. Um, That is pretty much my mission. Um, And I'm very militaristic about getting comics done. Um, I worked day job for about a decade. And uh, after working day job about, you know, 10 years or so, um, once I decided that I was just gonna do comics forever, then I just had to simulate being hungry and i'm living within the simulation now for the rest of my life
1: <laughs> so this is your simulation pod welcome
0: to the simulation pod correct
1: <laughs> so what, what i really love about walking into people's studios is getting little glimpses of of how you work so some one of the things that i noticed immediately was your uh, whiteboard with your weekly schedule what looks like a list of projects on top of it um, you have your Apple computer up, you have your Ycom tablet, you also have a drawing table with ruled out uh, pages that you're drawing by hand, um, and also many uh, bookshelves packed to the brim with, with comics and books and stacks of paperback books. We just talked about the website that you've been buying some science fiction paperbacks from, um, a really great 1990s Bishop X-Men Action figure hiding in the plants. I have a um, story about that that I'll tell you in a moment. Yeah, I am looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so since you are so militaristic about getting comics pages done, how are you working uh, from physical pages to the digital tablet? Um,
0: what's your workflow? Okay, so my workflow essentially is very task-based, which means that the task, which is on the board, has to get checked off every day, but it has to be like a substantive, like application to the task that I'm employing when I start working on something. So, um, you know, with pages, um, they get hand drawn and then they get scanned into my computer and then I hand color them on my Syntec Wacom tablet um and that's pretty much it um that's pretty much the process that I go through with every single book now yeah um except with the new ones I'm trying out a lot of new things and a lot of those new things some of those I have to keep to myself but some yeah. of them I'll tell you about um so uh that has been the process scanning drawing and then scanning that's been the process for at least the last 10 years um mostly because i was working on washington white all of that time and i was very you know inexperienced with making comics when i first started so i'd say that like half that time was really sort of like just researching and deciding that this was what i was going to follow through with i did lots of illustration before that um and then you know now it's all comics all comics very little illustration very little gallery work so that's where i am now
1: yeah And I'm sorry, when did you start working on Washington White, which was recently published as a large newsprint
0: edition? I started working on Washington White probably around 2008, no, late 2017, um, because I worked at the Washington Project for the Arts um, for about three years, and that was my last sort of real job uh before um i just decided to do comics and i had actually quit several jobs before that um you know sort of starting a job and then being like i really want to work on art and then i'd quit the job and then be like oh i think i really want to have a job with a salary so i'm not gonna lie i was very indecisive at the beginning but once you know, I finally made the decision. Now this is sort of like my universe is inside of a house, which is <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah.
1: Um, so what was really the the turning point to make that decision that decision? Why is why is comics the thing for you?
0: Uh comics is the thing for me because it's still challenging. Um and I love to draw. Um, Those are the two things. Um, With comics, combining writing and drawing is actually... It's full of tension. It's full of this sort of tension that no matter how many ways you sort of, you know, hop into a bag and zip yourself up inside of that bag and struggle around, um, you always come back to the fact like, oh, it's still as simple as this, but it's actually very very difficult yeah. um so um that's what i live with as i'm reading as many comics as possible and trying to figure out what kind of comics i want to make um it's always about trying to understand the medium of comics and also trying to sort of decide what kind of experience i want a reader to have um and i think that that's the part that is the value of comics um and that has to do with reader engagement and how someone experiences a story that you want to tell
1: yeah there, there's something you, you said about the the tension between the art and the writing on the page view and that leads directly into one of the questions that i wanted to ask you is about the handling of the actual text and the language and the pages that you're developing um because when they appear on the page in your comics they have physicality they have weight they have dimension to them you're handling the lettering in a way that I haven't, that is not normally seen in like uh, commercial comics. Mm. So is that a tool to try to create some tension within the narrative or within the page or to force the reader to deal with text in a way that is uh, unusual or, or maybe just
0: different? Um, I think it's different in that um, I know that one thing that I've heard from people that, have read my comics is that it gives them this sort of whirling sensation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, and I'm, and I was sort of, you know, I was sort of torn for a little while thinking about, you know, just because I obviously draw the pages and then scan them into a computer. I have the option of, you know, just typing in my text. I could totally do that. Yeah. Um, and I struggle with it most definitely. Um, but every time I start, I'm like, no, I think I, I'm, I'm stuck with this hand lettered thing that I've committed to. <laughs> so every day, once I get, when I'm trying to get started drawing a page, it always comes back to like, you know, how am I going to make my lettering work? And how am I going to envision what this page of narrative is going to look like? Um, The page that you're looking at right now is This sequence where I'm actually telling like a past, mid-present, and present. Uh, And it's a part of a Washington White. That's what we're looking at. Um, And that whirling sensation makes it possible to like immerse the reader in a way where they can accept some really kind of like experimental, but well let's see, the word might be more like uh, unconventional story. They can experience unconventional story content in addition to unconventional storytelling when the context is that it's all up to me to give them the story. Yeah, You know, in that part, um, it's very hard to take responsibility for it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I guess I, that, that whirling sensation is a really good way to describe it. And I was thinking of it almost more as like, of like a visceral sense of being in the story. So that's like one way to kind of draw the reader in. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about Washington White for the readers, or I'm sorry, the listeners who have not read the story or this part of the story that you've already
0: published? Sure thing. So Washington White is a story about my grandmother who... Um, filed a gender race bias lawsuit um, against the U.S. Civil Service Commission in 1974. She started working for the commission in 1969. Um, She won her case in 1976. Um, And it was sort of a landmark case because, you know, the U.S. Civil Service Commission at that time was tasked with actually the oversight of all of the other agencies in the country, making sure that they were not discriminating against, you know, uh, their diverse workers and making sure that they were hiring diverse workers. So uh, I always sort of say it's kind of like a redundant thing that she had to like sue the US Civil Service Commission because she was a part of what was supposed to be the solution. Yeah. Um, And what ended up happening, um, talking more about what the story is, is that I went back, I contacted the Library of Congress, tried to find documents um, related to the case. The only ones that I had seen were from when I lived in my grandmother's house um, when I first moved to D.C. And so those ones I had, but they were very, you know, sort of topical. Yeah. And what I ended up having to do was make it all up. So what happened was that I turned my grandmother's race bias lawsuit story into a science fiction epic. And that is exactly what it is. Yeah. (laughs) And the first part of it has
1: been published, uh, as you said earlier, as a newsprint edition Hmm. recently. You're working on
0: the next section now. How is that going to manifest? Um, I haven't quite decided yet. There was, keep your fingers crossed for me, there was some interest um, in perhaps putting together part one and part two as sort of like a first edition of the story. Um, So that would be the first 300 pages, and it's a 600-page story. Um, So uh, I am actually, I actually have enough pages ready at this point to do the next one but i'm in like a race against time to get the whole first half done now because that's what this publisher wants so i'm sort of like okay i have to get all of this done and this is what happens when you're trying to make a story that's very unconventional and you have to navigate through like the publishing world um because everything is out of the box, very hard to describe and contextualize. Publishers always want to know about like who you think the audience for the book is. They yeah. always want to, you know, they want to know that the author can package the story in a way that's gonna make their job easier. And I'm gonna tell you now that like nine times out of ten, like the author has no idea how to do that.
1: <laughs> well, to piggyback off of one of those questions, who is the audience? or who is your
0: audience. Once again, I have no idea. No idea. No idea. Yeah. So, um to address that actually a little bit more directly for you. Um so I worked for a place called Provisions Learning Project that still exists. It is at George Mason University. Um and I was exposed as a young person as an intern in fact to, you know, a lot of really radical ideas and I was, you know, very scared to read ad busters when it arrived at our office every week um but it was a library and social change and arts um sort of center um but it was a tiny little nonprofit and we had a very limited audience and one of the things i realized after being there for so long was that you know if you want to do something that um is really kind of proactive you have to be prepared for the fact that you don't know who's gonna want it yeah so um, with everything I do now the first thing that I forget is who's gonna want it I don't think about that at all yeah and so um, you know the funny thing about social media these days is that a lot of like the cartoons and things you read have to do with like how an artist is trying to connect with an audience, and them being like, "Oh, how many follows I have? How many likes do I have?" And like all of that for me is just like, you know what? I really don't have time to worry about all of that right now. I'm trying to finish six hundred pages yeah. of comics, <laughs> okay, you know, like, and so, um you know, being asked to do that, I think, it, creative people being asked to do that on top of. The creative workload, I think, is kind of, um, it. it's unreasonable enough for me to decide that it's something that I'm going to cut out, even though I know that lots of people do have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And Washington White isn't even
1: the only thing that you have going on right now, right? You're. <laughs> when I walked in, you said you were writing
0: two different scripts. Yep, I'm writing two different scripts right now. And they're both sitting over here on this screen. Um, And I don't use any kind of sophisticated software. I'm literally working in like my text editor. And everything is just one thing after another with these right now. Um, One, I'll tell you a little bit about that because I am doing a little bit of like vague market testing with this one. Here, I'll show you. Something that you probably would never have seen. Um, so the first one is actually based on a uh, graphic novel that I did when I was in high school. Oh, wow. So I did this graphic novel in high school, and um, like pretty much all of my friends loved it. They loved it, and they read it, and in the back of the book, because I was too cheap to buy a yearbook... Um, all of my friends have all of their comments about the story, you know, all that good stuff. Oh
1: my gosh.
0: And so I was like, you know what? I really owe these people like another version of this story that's more clear. Yeah. So, you know, so now I am working reworking this story completely. But when I was going to art college, um, I bought this book to uh my portfolio interview and like my interviewer was like what is going on here where where are you from again and you know once i said delaware she was like oh okay nobody knows where that is it makes perfect sense (laughs) that you would have the time to do this so you know i'm working on you know a reworking of this um and so i might be like asking some of those people from my past yeah um about like things that stood out to them in the work Um, but I'm trying to do it in a way that's you know a little bit more sort of intimate and less like less like some of the people online that you might see who always have a question for you know like their like 5,000 friends and all their 5,000 friends answer and then like you meet them in person and you find out that they're actually like a content editor for like an official website somewhere, but you just never actually knew it. And actually nobody knows it. So, you know, this is just sort of like my own uh, sort of like reaching out to people who are important and close to me and then trying to give them something that sort of lights their whole youth on fire.
1: This is incredible that you have your graphic novel story from high school with you and that you're able to then get back in contact with everyone from or with some people from that time period.
0: Uh, Yeah, that's something that I think I mean, I think that people have always done that. But, you know, the Internet makes that much easier now. Um, And so. Let's see, probably about two years ago, I realized that I had totally, like, topped out on, like, reaching back in the past. I was like, I've contacted everybody I've known from the past now, so what will I do about this? I feel like, you know, I can probably grow up now, you know? Um... And then I was like, no, I should actually just do a project. And what should the project be? I don't know. Maybe I should just redo this crazy book that I did my junior year of high school. I actually did another one too, but that one I'm not going to go into today. So you know, um, so so that's the project. That's one of the projects. And then the other one is one that I'm sort of keeping tucked in my in my shirt pocket yeah. because this next one is going to be a really special one to me. So I'm, I've am i been doing a lot of research on it. I'm trying to think of like a pile of, there are lots of piles of stuff here that are directly related to the news story, but I don't think any of the piles that are here right now can really give you a whole picture of what that story is going to be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so those are two of the books. And then there's actually a mini comic I'm also working on, um and that one's more of sort of like a quick kind of brisk thing yeah um but you know because i'm a crazy person uh i have this webcomic called american cryo that i've been working on for about a year now there are 28 strips at this point um and you know, I was like, it doesn't make sense that uh, there are 52 weeks in a month and I've only done 28. And at the beginning of the year, I had a gallery show, which crossed my fingers, I hope, is my last gallery show. (laughs) Um, And so I sort of got tied up in that and couldn't do my weekly comic for the whole first half of the year. But now I'm back on it. And so, you know, that's, the next one's coming out. I thought I was going to be able to get it done today, but then I was like, you know what? Like stay sane, put it out next week. You know, that's one of those things. Yeah. Well,
1: it seems like you're, you're really good with time management or at least like planning out your projects to to figure out what you need to be doing as you're juggling a 600 page story, uh, a weekly (laughs) comic, two separate projects that you're currently writing. Mm -hmm.
0: um, And a mini comic. Mm -hmm. Um, and reading and researching it's yeah. it's all um i it's gestalt it's definitely gestalt yeah. um it's like a whole comics thing this is all i'm doing and You know, when I was in my 20s, you know, uh, sorry, this is one of those sort of pithy millennial type stories. Um, When I was in my 20s and sort of like working all the working one job where I had a steady salary, I really didn't know what I wanted to do at all. You know, definitely not. Um, But I was drawing the whole time, which didn't make any sense. So, you know, that's the reason why I have this crazy index card file of, like, a couple thousand index card drawings because I was just working, like, and I didn't know why I was still drawing at all because I had a job, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, those index
1: cards also featured prominently
0: in the Arlington Arts Center show. Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, uh, the curator, Blair Murphy, came over and um, I just sort of handed her, like, these armfuls of cards and then I was like, <laughs> Oh, you know what? If she's gonna do that out in the living room, I'm just gonna come back here and work. And like, I'd come out every now and then, and like, she would like look up, like, with her face was like, oh. and I was like, man, I really sort of dropped her down a click hole here with these <laughs> uh, index cards. Um, so I think she had a good time. I think she had a good time. But you know, like at the end of it, she was like, I have 250 cards, but it needs to be like, and I was like do you really want to try to find a number for that? And she's like, I need, like, 180. And I was like, that sounds like the way that our economy works. Just come up with that, like, random number. And, like, you've got a number now. You've made a plan. So, wonderful. 180 instead of 250. Wonderful. And that's what we did. Yeah. So
1: amazing. But now no more gallery shows. That is behind you.
0: Gallery shows are very hard. Gallery shows are hard because um putting everything into like uh, one piece of work is tough. yeah, and uh, there was one work one work that I did during that show that's called um House of Ten Million Watches, and it's a building that's covered in eyeballs. And it's covered in, I don't know how many I did I wasn't counting how many eyeballs were on it. But there was a point in time, and this is why I've been tired for months. There was a point in time when I was working on the drawing. I don't know what point I was at on the drawing, but all of a sudden, like my arm just sort of like kicked in, and it felt like I had no control over my arm, and I was, you know, just drawing one eye after another, one eye after another. My senses felt very heightened, and I was like, this is draining all my life force right now. This is totally draining all my life force, and I'm not going to do any more of these shows where I'm working miracles and, like, giving, you know, turning, like, three loaves into, like, 10,000 loaves. Like, not going to do it anymore. I'm going to, you know, like, make one story, and then I'm going to give it to you know some beloved industrial printing company and they're gonna make the multiples for me and it's not gonna disappear into someone's house never to be seen again so that's why i'm very happy i'm not gonna be doing any more gallery shows it's it's a lot Hmm. oh this one's yours sorry oh is it mine's right here oh no, we have is,
1: multiple beers around.
0: This is the communal beer, so. That's oh, okay, share. that the is my half. Is yours. Excellent,
1: thank yeah. you very much. I should be working on my first one. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about getting into comics, or actually, like starting up the process of putting out the comics themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you did participate in the uh, Santoro School in
0: Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. When was that? Uh, that was about two years ago. No, that was last year, actually. Um. Oh. Everything is yeah, I don't really count time anymore, just to be clear. Um, uh yeah, like sometimes I'm up at like four AM working and like my husband's like, Where are you? And I'm like, No, no, I'm down here now. Bye. Um so that was last year in February. Um and I remember it was February because like I really hate the cold and I like to hibernate and Pittsburgh is freezing in February. It is. It's quite cold. And I walked everywhere and I don't even I don't have an explanation for why I did that. I don't. But it was a really wonderful experience. Frank and Sally Ingraham, she is the other person who is one of the sort of key people there. Um they're very supportive of comics artists. Um and you don't have as you don't see as much of that sort of artist support in the comics world, and that's probably mostly because it was such an industry at its inception.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and you have you know over the course of comics history, so many non-attributed artists. Um, so you know, I think we're now getting to this time where people are sort of like, okay, let's try to think about like why we want comics to continue to exist, and first and foremost is we want to figure out like which kinds of artists are like identifying the core principles of the medium. And we should probably figure out how to keep those folks going. Um, You know, I actually, (laughs) this is funny. I actually went to uh, the executive director of a small press expo like a week ago, two weeks ago, uh, and um you know we both like immediately he showed me his collection we walked around and looked through a bunch of stuff but um you know we both immediately like looked at each other and we were like Tilly Walden you know like like you know who those artists are you're like this is an artist who like understands like what the medium is all about and that's why you and I both know her you know like yeah and so I think that that's happening in comics and frank and sally i think understand that as well um and that's why they do the kind of work that they do um and yeah i scripted and drew about half of a mini comic there um it was very peaceful i was in a row house maybe about three row houses up from frank's house um And Frank was working on his book Pittsburgh, which um, is out now. It's like a 240-page full-color book that he did mostly in, like, watercolor and marker. Um, But it was released through a French publisher. So it's all in French. So there's a book about Pittsburgh in French, just so you know. Um, But he was working on it at the time. So, like, you know, sometimes I would take a break and, like, walk out of my row house and like walk down the street and like Frank's windows out onto the street were right there. And you'd look into the front windows and you could see Frank like hunched over his boards, like sort of you know, work. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like, how did I get here? How did I get here? Um, yeah. And, and I think that point in time when I saw Frank like working, looking through his front window, standing in the middle of snow, you know, I was, you know, I was like, oh, OK, like this is this is just as romantic as, you know, like, you know, flinging flinging paint onto a canvas. Thank you, Jackson. Thank you, Jackson Pollock. Yeah. I don't know Pittsburgh seems like such a wonderful comics town.
1: Um, and this is a little bit looking from the outside in. I used to live in Pittsburgh for a long time. Um and there was definitely a, an independent comics scene there with Ed Piskor and Jim Rugg and Tom Scioli, mm-hmm. um, who I've been referring to as more like the, the Pittsburgh school mm-hmm. in uh, in my classes here. Um, what did you – can you tell me a little bit more about what you thought
0: of Pittsburgh outside of it just being snowy? <laughs> sure. Um, uh, well, what, what was new to me is that I had worked at, you know, sort of fine arts nonprofits for – 10 years um and so to go to a city where like the default is comics was very new to me like i would be the first few days before i started the residency i came and just you know wandered around and you know i was in a bar at like 10 at night like and just started talking to a group of people and you know they instantly asked me You know, when I told them I was an artist, they said, oh, well, do you have a comic? And I was like, what? Like, your (laughs) default when you think about art is comics? This is the kind of town that I should probably be living in. Yeah, that's how I felt. And the only other place that I've been like that is Chicago. Um, But Pittsburgh, um, it's, you know, formerly a working class town, so it makes sense that comics is what it is, you know, like yeah. it makes sense that that's what it what it, what it has been um, and the place that I enjoyed the most, oh my goodness, I enjoyed Eames, you know, which is like this three floor like comics megaplex full of, you know, all these long box comics. Do you mean Ides? Ides. Thank you. See? <laughs> uh, Ides, yes. Uh, and yeah, I was there for several hours. Several <laughs> hours. And when I was leaving, the guy was like, "We're going to give you the nerd discount." Like he just sort of looked <laughs> me up and down and he was like, "We're going to give you a nerd discount." And I was like, "Oh, thank thank you very much." You know. Yeah. Yeah. And that was when I sort of became just really I was I mean, I was really impressed with Pittsburgh. I also went to the um uh the museum as well and saw that show um the and when i was there there were all of these sort of like how to get a career started in comics books laid out and i sat with these books for maybe about three hours like you know just like flipping through and taking pictures of all the pages inside of them no one cared um but you know it was just impressive that there's like some place where people are like, well, if someone's going to sit down in our lobby, they probably are interested in comics and we want to convince them to keep going with it. Yeah. So here are all of our vintage books about, you know, like how to become a comics professional from like golden age and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah.
1: Since the workshop, who have you been uh who have you been talking with about your work? Like how do you Do you reach out to people to critique things or to get a
0: early look at what you're doing? Who are you bouncing ideas off of? I do very little idea bouncing. Um, and I mostly do it. I mostly don't do it because I feel as if it's a burden. (laughs) (laughs) I really don't want to burden people with my ideas. I have this sort of thing, you know, like, you know, when someone has a dream and like, they're like, oh, my God, I had this crazy dream last night. And let me and I'm like, nope, stop. I don't want to hear about your dream I don't want to hear about your dream so like that's my sort of attitude with like talking about stories with other people I try not to do that and try to sort of keep the conversation on like the medium or you know um that that's probably just detrius from like gallery world small talk so maybe I'll get over it in a few years yeah, yeah. but <laughs> What
1: about a a comics community here in the D.C. area?
0: Um, I think there's a strong community here in the D.C. area. Um, It's just not sort of so centralized around, um, I guess, traditional comic strips or even comic books, perhaps. Um, You know, the strongest comics community here is editorial cartoonists first and foremost, yeah, and that's more like the whole region. So, you know, you have someone like Kel- Kevin Callaher, who I think lives in, like, Baltimore or something, but, like, he does so many, you know, like, editorial works and stuff like that. A lot of people in D.C. know who he is, and Telnaeus, people like that. Um, the group that I work with is the D.C. Conspiracy. They put out um, a newspaper called Magic Bullet, And I participate in that when I can. Um, And then a lot of the people who are part of that also have their own projects. And sometimes I'll get pulled into one of those projects. They have monthly meetups and it's good. um, But I think that if anything, I'd like to see something more like what Pittsburgh has. That's like a real salon about talking about like comics and comics history and contemporary comics um the what i've seen so far is maybe more sort of light and publicity laden um than sort of that kind of intellectual slash academic discussion that i sometimes really hope for which hopefully does not include any discussion of my own work yeah (laughs) yeah um but well, it seems like you also reacted
1: really well to being in Chicago and the comics community there. So one question would be, What's why are you staying in Washington, D.C.? What's interesting to you about this
0: place? Uh, well, I think that there... Let's put it this way. There are definitely enough stories about Washington, D.C. in comics. Um, but a lot of those stories are like... Uh, apocalyptic stories (laughs) we have this way of talking about what's inside the beltway that's mostly only related to you know like a sort of conspiratorial view of the government granted Washington White is definitely a sort of conspiratorial narrative but it's also sort of like a mashup of like a slice of life slash family story so it's more personalized um and because my whole family's from here like there's something that kind of keeps me grounded by being in this area specifically yeah like even when i go somewhere else like chicago or pittsburgh i'm like oh wow there's so many comics artists around like i would be really you know um yeah i would i would really thrive here but then you know i come back to dc and i'm like oh well there's like nothing here and i want there to be something here so well i don't have a problem like not having a community so i'm just gonna keep working you know yeah Yeah. um
1: as a we got some traffic outside yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. um well before we wrap things up Mm. i did want to ask
0: you um about the bishop story oh sure Okay, so um my best friend from childhood named John Scholl, um, he and I loved comics and we would he was a big Deadpool fan and you know, like we would talk about Deadpool and Deadpool's albino jokes and things like that. Um, and now John, who's been trying to get into the Air Force for years, he no longer reads comics at all. He is a grown up. Oh um, but his younger brother is very much into comics and you know has vitrines full of toys in his house. Um, and uh, every time I draw something online, he likes it. And one day he saw something he liked enough where he was like, can you do a commission for me? And I was like, what do you want exactly? Cause I don't really draw superheroes at all. Um, and You know, he was like, I want 90s-era Bishop. And I was like, well, I know exactly what it looks like, and I actually have a toy of it. I don't actually remember how I got that toy either, to be (laughs) honest. And um, this was the point where I realized, like, how unsuited I am to draw superheroes because, you know, like, there must be some thing for, like, straight guys where, like, they draw, like, these, like, buff dudes, and there's, like, this sort of, like, tension, like... Oh man, no one'll believe I'm drawing like this strong man, you know? Like nobody'll believe it. No. But if you're like a gay guy and you draw like a buff guy, it's like drawing porn. <laughs> so like I started to draw bishop for my best friend's younger brother and I became intensely weak and I had to like get on all fours and try to finish the drawing. It's somewhere around here, but it's been an upwards of like two years now of me working on this bishop commission because i'm like listen i really don't like to do this and every time i start doing it it feels like really kind of i don't know it feels mm, icky so (laughs) you know so we have a discussion about why i feel icky every time he contacts me asking where the commission is but yes you know so there's something involving bishop in the works but who knows when that'll get done (laughs) That drawing is somewhere in one of these stacks? Yep, yeah, it's somewhere in one of these stacks, and every time I pull it out, I'm like, ugh, I don't like drawing muscles like that, you know, it's like,
1: yeah. <laughs> Alright, so I lied. One last question. Yeah. yeah. Whenever we started, uh, you said that you were currently reading a bunch of paperback novels. Uh, sure. Kind of get back into a writing mode, as yeah. you're now pounding away on, on a couple of scripts. Like what here. are the books that you're um, reading?
0: Let's see. Um, I told my husband about this one half as a way to delight him because he always likes to hear about what I'm reading, but also to scare him because he needs to be educated. This is gaslight tales of terror. Oh, this is amazing. Yeah. So, um, you know, allegedly it's stories about men gaslighting women that turn into terror somehow. And I, you know, just let Jeffrey know, you know, if there's any gaslighting that's gonna happen in our home, like I'm gonna be prepared at this point, you know, if you're gonna lie to me. So, yeah. So there's one. Of them. Yeah. Thank you.